If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Jeremiah 26. We aren't going to read a lot of Scripture today because um, I'm going to explain some concepts that didn't originate with the Scripture. They came from Greek philosophy, so that's why I can't use the Scripture to substantiate them. Um, so we're in a series, this long series that we've been doing about the problem of evil. And now all of you, please remember, have we done series in church about how to get along with people? Somebody remember that. Yeah, have we, have, we talked about, have we talked about how to manage your finances and how to hear God and all these kinds of things? So we do, we, we, I believe in doing very practical teaching. The church is supposed to help every aspect of your life. But part of church is, is trying to deal with really difficult questions and help people understand why the world is the way that it is. And I think the church sometimes has missed it by not wanting to engage in these kinds of discussions. Uh, and, and people have hard questions. And I think that misunderstanding why there's evil in the planet has been the source of more people renouncing their faith than just about anything. And I think too many people blame God for all of the evil that's going on on the planet. And so what we've been trying to do in this series is explain why evil exists that doesn't lay blame at God's feet. I don't believe God is the, the problem. I believe that there's a bunch of free agents. There's humans and angels that have used their free will to make evil decisions, and that's not God's fault. So... I want to talk just a little bit more about free will, and I want to conclude this series this week and maybe probably next week uh, talking about the relationship between free will and the future. This is going to be a complex... Everybody, you've got to engage your brain. Everybody say, I'm ready, I'm ready. to engage, engage my brain. brain. All right, so this, this is... This is going to be uh, a little bit of a mind-bending journey. I'm going to take a position that's a little different than probably what most of you have heard. Uh, I, I never really thought that I would teach about this because I didn't think it mattered that much, but I did a research paper on this recently. And if for some reason you have a sickness like me and you want to read that, I'm happy to send it to you. You can read the footnotes and everything, but uh, just, just let me know. But the, uh, the reality is how we view the future, it matters more than I thought because if we have a particular view of the future as a closed future, which I'll explain in a moment, I don't believe you can believe in free will. And so I don't think this is a a side issue, I think it's really important. And uh, basically the question is this, at the end of Back to the Future 3, anybody remember Back to the Future? <laughs> with, with uh, what's the guy's name? Marty McFly. Uh, Michael J. Fox, yeah. Great movies, right? And so Michael J. Fox, in the end of the third one, he comes back to the present. And, and his girlfriend has this note that she got from the future. And on this note, it says, you're fired, because that's something that happened when they're in the future. But when they get back to the present, she opens up the note, and she looks at it, and it disappears. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it disappears. Then Doc Brown shows up in this 
train that he converted into a time machine. And, and she says to him, Doc, why did this thing erase? And what the doc says is, of course it erased. And she says, well, but what's it mean? And he says, it means the future isn't written yet. It's yours to make it whatever you want. So make it a good one. Now, how many of you know that's encouraging? I think it's all. He says, the future's not written yet. You can make of it whatever you want. The trouble is, most of the church doesn't believe that. Most of classical theology has believed in what's called a closed future. It's similar to what physics, a lot of physicists believe. Physicists, many of them, like Albert Einstein, now many modern ones because of quantum physics have rejected this notion, but Albert Einstein believed in what's called a block world and that the past, present, and future are all fixed. and You can't change any of it. And this is what uh, a lot of classical theology thought as well, that, that the future is already written, and we aren't creating the future, we're just discovering a future that already exists. The debate then is, does the future consist of genuine possibilities, or is it already pre-written? When I wake up in the morning and I have an array of options, toast, bagel, cereal, does the choice that I make create a future? Or am I just stepping into a future that was already prescripted? Am I watching a movie of my life, or am I co-creating the movie with God as we move through time? You understand how that's a big debate? A lot of Christian theology believes in what's called a closed future or a block world, and that, that makes the future predetermined. The question is, why does so much Christian theology believe in a closed future? To answer this question, we've got to go through a bit of a journey through history, and I can't use the Scripture really to build this case, because in my opinion, based on my research, this concept didn't come from the Scripture. It came from Greek philosophy. And so I'm going to show you that. Uh, there's Scriptures that people use to support that, but uh, it's, a very, it's very tenuous, in my opinion. So these are challenging concepts. I'm going to ask you to rethink your relation, the, the relationship between God and time. And I don't intend everybody to immediately come over. I don't expect everybody to immediately come over to where I'm at. I understand these are challenging concepts. And again, I wouldn't even taught it because it's somewhat controversial, but I've realized that if we're going to believe in free will, we have to change how we think about some of these things. And I believe in free will, and so I've shifted how I thought about this. So uh, just keep an open mind, pun intended, because it's an open future. All right, bad, bad, bad pun. Okay. Jesus, okay, hallelujah. Okay, everybody say, I love, I love Pastor Max. Dwayne Sheriff always says that. Anyway, I guess it makes me feel better. But anyway, all right. Here's a, here's a historical fact, all right? When the first church 
set out to preach the gospel, they preached the gospel in the Roman Empire primarily first. This is the first 300 years of the church right after the early apostles. As they were going around preaching the gospel, they ran into a culture that was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, these guys were very influential. And the Roman-speaking world, the Roman world had adopted a lot of their ways of thinking. And for uh, the Roman citizens, the, the educated ones that were familiar with Greek philosophy, they thought that the early Christians were uneducated, because a lot of them were, and they thought they were atheists, which I know sounds really strange because it's like, well, they believe, they believe in God. But to the uh, pagan culture of that time, they worshipped a bunch of idols, and they could see their gods. The Christians worshipped some invisible god. Does that make sense? And so they thought that the Christians, they, they thought they were like atheists or something. They don't believe in all of our gods. And this is one of the reasons there was all this persecution, because the Christians refused to engage in all these pagan worship practices. And they worried that the wrath of the gods was going to come on them because the Christians wouldn't do the various rituals and whatever. Therefore, they persecuted them. What happened was that a lot of the early, really smart Christians, they looked at this situation and they said, we want to reach these smart pagans that read Greek philosophy. In order to do that, they came up with ways of interpreting the Scripture that made Christianity and Greek philosophy flow together. They tried to show that there were principles in the Bible that were also in Greek philosophy. And that's actually true. They used what's called allegorical readings of Scripture, so they would, you know... The, so, if you read Greek philosophy, it's like, it's all these principles, and it's really clean and pretty, whereas if you read the Bible, it's like all these stories of people murdering each other and making terrible mistakes, and, and there's all this, this stuff. It doesn't, it's not clean and pretty. But are there principles about life that you can find in there? Absolutely. Now, why is it not clean and pretty? Because the real world is not some abstract, rational thing where we just sit in a room and think about principles all day long. So the philosophers just lived in this, re this realm of reason. That's, that's what they thought. You know, this is what's important. The most important thing is reason. The Bible realizes that's not true. Most of life has nothing to do with reason. I mean, have you been around people? But anyway, <laughs> so, so the, the, these early writers, like people like Clement of Alexandria and Origen and then later Ambrose and Augustine, they were motivated, they, they had a noble goal, and their noble goal was to reach the pagan lost world. And you can actually see this in the life of Paul. When Paul goes to uh, uh, Athens, and, or he's arguing with these philosophers on Mars Hill, Anybody remember this? And he says, he says, I passed by this altar, and it said, to the unknown God. Yeah. 
So it's like he finds this altar and there's not, a, there's not an image there. All the other altars have a picture of Zeus or Athena or Aphrodite or whatever. And he finds, you know, they, they were worried they might have missed one, so they just put an altar to whatever God we can't know about yet. There's no image there. And, and Paul says, you know, you guys were ignorantly worshiping this altar, this invisible God. That's the God I'm revealing to you. The Greek philosophers believed that there was probably some kind of supreme being, but they didn't come up with their picture of the supreme being using the Scripture. Mm -hmm. They came up with their picture of the supreme being using reason. Aristotle did this like this. He said, look around. Have you noticed everything's moving? I mean, have you ever thought about this? It's frightening. I mean, we're on a planet that is spinning rapidly. The planet is hurtling around the sun. The sun is hurtling through the universe as the, as the galaxy spins. And the galaxy itself, the whole thing, is moving through space. Everything is moving. And Aristotle looked at all that and he thought, well, something had to set all that stuff in motion. Right? Something had to start it. This is a good argument. And he said, that thing itself must not be something that moves. Everything else is moving. The first cause must not move. So that's where he came up with this idea of the unmoved mover. So anyway, Greek philosophers, they, they used their reason to come up with a picture of God. And they said, you know what, God? He must be immutable. That means he can't change. He must be impassable. That means he can't have emotions or suffer. And he must be timeless. That means he's outside of time or unaffected by time. What you've got to understand is that they arrived at those conclusions entirely outside of the Scripture. Then what happened was the Christians were trying to win these people to Jesus, and they said, you know that invisible God that you guys are talking about? That's the God we worship. Does that make sense? So what happened was a synthesis of Christian and Greek Philosophy occurred, and uh, a, a great many Christians assumed about God that He was immutable, impassable, and timeless. But those concepts didn't originate from Scripture. They were adopted as a result of trying to evangelize the Greek philosophical world. Now, that doesn't immediately mean that, that they're wrong, but it is, it is worrisome to me. I don't think you're meant to start. So you have a choice. You can, you can start here with the Scripture and, and God's revelation, or you can start with your brain. It's not that your brain is, is totally screwed up and can't figure out anything, but your brain is fallen. If I'm to believe this, which I do. And so I don't I, I, I think what you need to do is start with Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. If you look at the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus grew up. Jesus changed. Now his Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning His character never changes. 
But in one moment, he says to Peter, Peter, you're a, God has spoken to you. God has revealed this profound truth to you. Is that, did he say that? And then Peter's like, well, don't go get crucified, Jesus. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In one moment, he's, he's saying, Peter, you're doing great. And then he changed his opinion based on what Peter did. And the high point of, of Christianity, Christianity believes, in my opinion, that Jesus is the full and final picture of God. That's Hebrews 1.3. And that the high point of, of Christ's life is the cross. How many of you believe that the cross is the full picture of Jesus? That's who God is, right? He's the kind of God that dies on the cross for you. If I accept the impassibility of God, I have to say that, that God didn't really suffer on the cross. Just Jesus is humanity because God can't suffer. I've taught all this before at length, and I, I'm, I'm not trying to go back over all that, but do you understand what I'm saying here is that, that there are certain assumptions that people had about God, and then when they read the Scripture, they interpreted them in light of those assumptions. Look at Jeremiah 26. I'll give you an example. So in Jeremiah 26, verses 1 through Three, we see this. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah which come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I command you. Don't diminish a word. Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I might relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of their evil doings. Okay, so he says, go tell all the Israelites to repent because they might do it. And if they do, I might be able to change my mind and not bring this destruction. For a Platonist, so you got, you got to understand what's happening historically is is Christians are trying to convert these Platonists. And like Augustine and a Platonist, when they'd read this scripture, they'd think, well, that's terrible. A perfect being can't change his mind because they've already assumed that that's true based on their reason. In order then to convert these people, they came to the conclusion, they came up with a way of, script, of reading scripture which says, this is an accommodation. Meaning, people, their brains are small, and they can't understand what God is really like, so God allowed Himself to be presented this way because of our fallenness, but that's not how God really is. We know that God doesn't really ever change His mind because He's a perfect being, and perfect beings can't ever change. They said this is what's called an anthropomorphism. Now, I know that's a long word, but anybody ever watched Thomas the Train or something like that with your kids? How, how, so Thomas the Train is an anthropomorphic train. He's a train that possesses human characteristics. He has a mind and he can think and talk and whatever. So if we anthropomorphize something, we, we project human traits onto something that doesn't really have them. So what they said was, this scripture is us 
projecting onto God human traits that he doesn't really possess. So I know you think, well, I'd never think that. But listen, this is, this is for, for 1,700 years, this is a, a vast majority of Christian theology thinks this way. It thinks, well, this can't be true about God, and so this is, we have to reinterpret it. Is everybody following me a little bit? Okay, so um, they would look at this and they'd say, well, we know that God can't actually change his mind. He's going to do whatever he eternally purposed. This passage is just written that way to accommodate our fallenness. But there are good reasons to question that reading. First of all, it's unclear what has happened to us that we can suddenly understand this. If the people it was written to thought that God could change his mind, how come we're smart enough now that we know that's not true? It's a good question, right? Now, if you could say and that, well, Jesus came and Jesus revealed to us that God couldn't change his mind, then I'd be with you. And I'd say, well, maybe we do need to reinterpret that. Jesus told us, actually, that some things in the Old Testament are accommodations. For example, he said that, uh, that the fact that Moses said you could get divorced for any reason, that was an accommodation for man's hard heart. And he said, but, but from the beginning it wasn't so. So that means I've got to reinterpret that Old Testament passage. But, but there's nothing in the life of Jesus that would lead me to believe that I can't just take this at face value. Does that make sense? I believe I, I, believe I just have to submit to that because I don't have anything that tells me that that's not how God actually is. The reason, the thing that happened that allowed people to reinterpret this wasn't Jesus, it was Plato. And if the key to understanding the Bible is in Plato and not the Bible, I think that's a problem. I know this is kind of intense. Another reason to question this is the whole point of this passage is to call people to repentance. So he says, look guys, repent because I might change my mind. If the real meaning of the passage is, I'll never change my mind, then how on earth does this passage make any sense? In fact, if you think that, if you think God can't ever change his mind, what it'll lead you to do is not repent. Because you'll think, well, it doesn't matter what I do, God's going to do whatever the heck he wants anyway. I used to think that the, that the future was prescriptive, and it led me to believe that what I did didn't matter. But this says that it's possible that they could have repented and then God could have changed his mind. So, this strategy of integrating Greek philosophy and Christian thought, uh, this, this isn't like my opinion. This is a well-established historic fact. The question is not whether that happened, it's whether or not it was good. I think there were some good things about it, but by and large, I think it was probably a net negative. But one thing that was good about it was it allowed for the conversion of the most influential person in Western church history, and that was a guy named Augustine who lived in the early, part, early 300s. 
And just like I talked about, he was initially scandalized by the Bible, and he thought it was like some kind of vulgar book because he was used to reading Greek philosophy that's all clean and pretty and well-argued, and the Bible's got all these people murdering each other and committing adultery, and it's all messy. And Augustine thought, well, that can't be true. And he became what's called a uh, Neoplatonist. He read a bunch of Plato, and he studied under this guy named Plotinus or Plotinus. And it wasn't until later, until he met a man named Ambrose, that he came to Jesus. But by the time he came to Jesus, he'd already read a bunch of Greek philosophy, and it's evident he integrated a lot of that into his thinking. And therefore, a lot of that made it into Christian theology. Now, if you haven't understood anything that I've said up to this point, here's where it really matters. The question is, why does so much of Christianity believe in a closed future? Why is it that people believe that everything is predetermined, that we can't change the future? It has to do with Augustine's version of divine timelessness. It has to do with how Augustine viewed God and God's relationship with time. So how did God view God's relationship with time? Uh, he said that God lived in what's called an eternal now. God exists in, quote, the excellency of an ever-present eternity. What that means is that for God, the past, present, and the future are all now. And this is a common notion. Most people accept this without thinking about it. The trouble is, this, in my opinion, doesn't come from the Scripture. It comes from Plotinus, because Plotinus says this, quote, a supreme being is a life changelessly motionless and ever holding the universal content and actual presence, not this now and now that other, but always all. What's he mean? He means it's not... It's not God living now, and then now, and then now, and then later. It's, it's God's always living all moments at all time. So from Augustine's perspective, if you asked God, how old is Pastor Max, he'd have a hard time answering. Because from God's perspective, I'm equally a baby, I'm equally in my 30s, and I'm equally already dead in heaven. Because all the, all the times, past, present, and future, they're all the same. They're all now. They all already exist. In the classical view of timelessness, it's not just that God can see or predict the future. It's also not that God can't age. Now, obviously, God is not sitting in heaven and is getting more wrinkles, but, but the classical picture of timelessness is that the future is just as real as the past or the present. It already exists because God is already there. Now, here's the thing. If, if that is true, if the future already exists, if it's already written, then that means that everything is predetermined. Because if it's already written, I'm not creating it. I'm just discovering what it says. 
I feel like I'm losing some of you. I'm going to recap my whole argument. Okay? Here's the argument if you didn't understand it. Christian philosophers assumed that the Greeks were right about God's timelessness. I want you to, I want you to put on hold whatever you thought about God being outside of time. The, the way that the Greek philosophers thought about it, they thought that it meant that the past, present, and future are all the same. This leaves no room for the future to be created. It only leaves room for us to discover the future as we, as we move forward. Uh, in physics, we would be saying that, that our progress through time is basically an illusion. So, viewing God as existing in an eternal now, it, it necessitates determinism, and that's why I reject it. I believe that the future does not yet exist. I believe the only moment that exists is this one. In a few hours, we're going to, dis- we're going to watch, I'm going to watch, you may not, but I'm going to watch the Chiefs game. I don't believe that thing is prescripted. That's why it makes me nervous. <laughs> because any outcome is possible. There's an entire range of possibility out in the future And not all of it is going to be actualized. Meaning it's possible that the Chiefs could win. Hopefully it's more possible than the other one, but it's also possible that they could lose. Now God, I'm sure, knows what's going to happen, but but that future doesn't exist yet because we haven't gotten there on the timeline. Additionally, if you embrace how Augustine thought about time, you have to see time as like your enemy because Augustine said that what happens with with time is it stretches your soul across past, present, and future. It mangles you, quote, mangles you with varieties. What he means by that is it's a major bummer. Isn't it a major bummer? how you can remember when your kids were born? Isn't it a major bummer how, how you, can, you can have conversations with people around you about past events and how you can have conversations about things you're looking forward to in the future? Wouldn't it be better if all of your reality was just co- collapsed on top of itself into an unintelligible mass and you couldn't tell the difference between past, present, and future? That's sarcasm. So... I know these are complicated subjects, but, but Augustine thought that when we get to heaven, that what's going to happen is our past, present, and future are all going to get collapsed. Because that's where God lives. God lives in eternity where there's no, where there's no passage of time. And we all think, oh, that's great. And it's gr- I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to get older. I'll be happy if my hair quits falling out. But, but do you understand, in order to have a... Con- How many of you believe you're going to have a conversation with somebody in heaven? Yeah. See, everybody believes that. If you read the Scripture, that's how it's depicted. Yeah. People have conversations in heaven. In he- to have a conversation, 
You've got to have before, during, and after. There's got to be sequence. It's the only thing that renders communication intelligible. You say, that communication wasn't intelligible. What I mean is, it's the only thing that makes conversation make sense. And Augustine says, God doesn't, for Augustine, he, he literally says this, God doesn't say one word and then the next word and then the next word. God says all words at the same time forever. That sounds cool. I get it. I understand why he thinks that. But what that would mean, in my opinion, is that when we get to heaven, your consciousness would be destroyed. That description of heaven, it's, it's far more like a pantheistic version of nirvana than it is the Christian heaven. It's like becoming one with the world soul. I don't want to become one with the world soul. I want to still be me. My grandpa just died. I believe he's in heaven. I believe he's still him. I believe he still possesses his memories. And I believe when I get there, I'm going to have a conversation with him. And there'll be a before, during, and after that conversation. That doesn't mean that, that you know, we're going to get older or that the bad aspects of time are going to hurt us, but it means we're going to stay human. Why do we have this idea that we've got to escape time? See, that's what Augustine thought, was that we've got to escape time. Again, that comes from Plato. Plato thought we needed to escape this cave, this fake reality that we live in, and get to the eternal plane. He talked a lot about souls going to heaven. Now, I believe our souls go to heaven, but what's the end of the book say? Do you stay in heaven? No, there's a bodily resurrection. That's the Christian hope. 1 Corinthians 15. We're resurrected, and then we live in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, thank God, God's going to get rid of the sin. He's going to get rid of death. He's going to get rid of all these problems. But, but there's still going to be people living here. We aren't going to die anymore. We're, we'll have all our hair. But, <laughs> but there will still be time. In the sense of, there will still be sequences. So you've got to let go of your view of time as some sort of like mystical force that just, all it is, is a, it's, a, it's a measure of change, of sequence. Moving through time, having one thing happen after the other, that's the only thing that makes, makes life make sense, in my opinion. Now, I know that this is challenging. And I know that some of you are like, well, I don't know about this. But what, what I'm telling you is that, that, you know, if you study this out, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of this. That this is true. These, these ideas about, about the eternal now and the past, present, and future all existing at the same time, that comes from, from Greek philosophy, not from the Bible. And uh, additionally, it comes from physics. And I'll talk about this more probably next week, but quantum physics very strongly to me, seems to suggest that the world is not a block world and that the future exists as a realm of possibility. So, anyway, let's, let's read number eight. Embracing the classical version of God's timelessness is what pushed Christian theology in a deterministic direction. Prior to Augustine, pretty much everybody believes in free will and uh, it's at Augustine, he's so influential, 
that so much of Christianity turns in a deterministic direction. And I think it's because of the influence of, of these Greek philosophers. If we're truly to embrace free will, I believe we have to reconsider God's relationship with time and present a clear argument for an open future. So I'll do that in the next message. And I'll, I've, I've just showed you what I don't think. I'll explain what I do think um, next week. But to me, this is a super hopeful message because it means you're a co-creator of your destiny. I believe Doc Brown was right. The future is not written yet. You get to determine it. And God works with you to determine your future. This doesn't limit... So, now, sometimes people will say, well, that, you're, you're limiting God. No, I'm saying God voluntarily chose to create a certain type of universe. I believe in free will. That means God can't override your free will. God chose to do that. That was his choice. He could have made us all robots, but he thought that would be boring, and he was right. That wouldn't make love possible. Similarly, he could have created a universe where there's a closed future, but again, that doesn't leave room for free will. And free will is the only thing that makes love possible. And love is the only thing that makes life have meaning. Jesus loves you. He loves all of us. That's why he gave you control over your own destiny. See, literally anything can happen. That's why life's exciting. All right, let's all stand up.